Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live healthy, connected, and purpose-filled lives. You can check out our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Well, what a difference a year makes. Last year, I interviewed Marianne Williamson about her life and career and about the intersection of politics and spirituality, my favorite topic. Ten months later, as a presidential candidate, she's not only standing on the debate stage next to Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and umpteen other candidates, she is adding a completely new voice and perspective to the political landscape. Not since the era of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King have we heard about a politics of love in the face of fear. She's brought issues like reparations for slavery to the forefront. She is urging us to examine the roots of our societal problems, not just the symptoms. Instead of just talking about health care, which she dubs sick care, Marianne wants us to address why so many people are getting sick in the first place. And while she's focused on issues, she has made the claim that policy wonkiness is not going to beat Donald Trump. He is a phenomenon. And while not everyone might resonate with dark psychic forces, the language she uses to describe this phenomenon, it's hard to argue that she's wrong. The Democratic Party needs a transcendent force to galvanize people. In this week's Commune podcast, we re-air my interview with Marianne from the fall of 2018. Perhaps you know her well already, but if you're just discovering her, this is a great way to learn more about her life and influences. If you're interested, you can go even deeper with Marianne's course on Commune, Teaching the Teachers. Just go to onecommune.com for more info. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. This career niche didn't exist when I began my career, so I didn't think of it as a career. When I was growing up, you could be a clergy, you know, organized religion, or you could be um, an academic, you could be a teacher of comparative religion, let's say. Those were the only two niches. There weren't people, like you use the phrase, spiritual teacher, whatever this career niche is today. So when I started lecturing on A Course in Miracles, I didn't think of it as a career because there was no, no reason to believe that it could be. It was just something I loved doing. And that was turned out to be the most wonderful thing that could possibly happen to me because I was kind of pure by default. There was nothing to be ambitious for. So uh, you grew up in Houston, um, and you didn't really take the normal family vacations to Disneyland as a child? My parents were world travelers. So, for instance, I went to Saigon in 1965 because my father wanted us to see what war was. Um, We went to countries behind the Iron Curtain, including Russia, countries in Eastern Europe. And people used to ask my parents, why are you doing this? They won't even remember. Why are you taking these kids all these places? And my father's stock answer was it will get under their skin. And he was absolutely right. I'm a different person than I would have been had I not experienced at a very early age that people are the same everywhere. 
there was so much propaganda I was just not vulnerable to because as a child I knew otherwise. So it seems from a very early age you were curious, you were worldly and interested in religion and philosophy and consciousness. And then when you were in your 20s, you read a spiritual book that changed your life. And that was A Course in Miracles. A Course in Miracles came out in 1976 and has been called the New Age Bible. The 1,300-page book contains curriculum for helping readers achieve spiritual transformation, with the main focus being to gain a full awareness of love's presence in one's life. Throughout the 1980s, sales of the book steadily increased, but the largest growth in sales by far occurred in 1992 after Marianne discussed the book on The Oprah Winfrey Show, resulting in more than 2 million volumes sold. The image I had when I started The Course in Miracles was that there was this big cathedral and this huge flight of stairs in front of the cathedral. And I had spent years climbing up those stairs and even on my knees, and my knees and my elbows were bloodied. I, I was trying so hard to open that door. But every time I tried to open it, it was locked. And then when I read The Course in Miracles, it was like, now I can unlock the door because it wasn't until I read the course that I understood the key is the other person, the person in front of you. Do you think, though, that so A Course in Miracles, it seemed to crystallize in a modern sense the notion that God is the love within us. And I think that there has been potentially sort of a perversion of institutionalized religions. You think? I think, perhaps, that has reinforced this notion that we and somehow are separate from God, exactly. that we created it. He didn't create us, Exactly, right? and that the love of God is not just something that is. It's something that must be participated with, that, they, that the love of God must be co-created with. I can believe in love, but if I don't extend love, if I don't think with love, then the fact that I quote-unquote believe in love um, doesn't create anything that's genuinely operational. The Course in Miracles says the belief in God is itself rather meaningless. It is the experience of God. And the experience of God that matters is the experience of my love and forgiveness of the person I'm thinking about or standing in front of. And it can't just be good intentions. You know, one of the things that I love in the Course is it says your good intentions are not enough. Your willingness is everything. To really do the constant work, which is inner work, mental work, where am I judging? Where can I release that? Where am I living in the past? Where can I release that? Where am I living in the future? Where can I release that? Where am I blaming? Where can I release that? Where am I playing victim? Where can I release that? Um, Where am I not being that which is the love within me? So there's a line in the Course where it says, you achieve so little because you have an undisciplined mind. And disciple and discipline come from the same word. So discipleship is mental discipline not to indulge the conscious choice, not that we are enlightened masters, but that we can certainly become aware enough to know, Marianne, that is an unloving thought. Marianne, that is a judgmental thought. Marianne, there, that is a controlling thought. Marianne, that is a whatever. And, and you know that you can surrender it, and there is a place to put it mm-hmm. and to say, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to see this situation differently. That's the Course in Miracles. It is the willingness to see a situation differently so that your mind can shift 
from a perception of fear, which is lovelessness, to love, which is the miracle. Return to Love, Reflections on the Principles of A Course in Miracles, was Marianne's first book. It quickly became a New York Times bestseller and has been credited as being hugely influential in helping to bring New Age perspectives to the American mainstream. But you never saw A Course in Miracles and A Return to Love as only a search, a quest confined to the individual. You saw a nation in search of its original nature, its infinite soul, that we needed to find that also as a country. When I first started my work on A Course in Miracles, my father was a little bit like, what happened to you? I raised raised you to wage the revolution. What happened to you? And I remember explaining to him that I thought love was the most radical revolution. Mm -hmm. He said, I raised you to fight the system. I said, the best way to fight the system, that is to dismantle the system. I realized it's just fear and that this will pave the way to a better world. And my father agreed. It was, was, so it was never, I never lost that fervor, but I was raised at a time, you know, I remember the day Bobby Kennedy died. I remember working uh, um, for Eugene McCarthy. I remember going to anti-war rallies. So that was always a part of who I was. And I never, you know, during the 60s and early in the 70s, there wasn't this disconnect between politics and spirituality that has developed over the last few decades, which you know I feel very strongly about. It was you did Ram Dass and the I Ching in the morning, and you went to an anti-war rally in the afternoon. You know, some young man said to me at one of my lectures a few years ago, well, you know, Ms. Williamson, really, I mean, you're just kind of an ex-hippie, and you guys were just sex, drugs, and rock and roll, really. And I remember saying, excuse me, that was just part of the day? <laughs> I said, yeah, just before I said the, noon. <laughs> I said, the rest of the day, we stopped a war. What okay. have you done, young man? Thank you. So, And were we scarred as a nation? I mean, did we get scared well, because abs- the politics of love yeah, got shot? Right. So when I was young and you had Bobby Kennedy and you had Martin Luther King and you had Eugene McCarthy and you had even JFK who had been, I was 11 when he died. So we, we had people who were in our midst. They weren't fictional characters and they were political leaders and they held aloft our great philosophical ideals. What happened, however, is that they were literally, literally shot and killed in front of our eyes. And we all psychically took those bullets because there was a very loud unspoken message there. And that message was, there will be no further protest. You will go home, you will do whatever you want in the private sector, but you will leave the public sector alone. You will leave it to whoever wants to control it so bad that they are willing to kill. And then they killed the kids at Kent State. 
that was it, message received. And so I always jokingly say that the, those who stayed with traditional politics took the East Coast. Those who <laughs> stayed with the idea of spirituality took <laughs> the, the West, West Coast. Coast. And now it's and all right coming back, back around to, to the weaving. But once again, I grew up in a generation where they were never disconnected. Well, I, I didn't know that you were going to bring up Bobby Kennedy, um, but there's a quote that I pulled uh, from him that I, that I just love, and, and I just want to read it really quickly. For too much and for too long, we seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community values in the mere accumulation of material things. And his brother, of course, President Kennedy, said, we cannot afford to be materially rich but spiritually poor. And uh, Bobby Kennedy, when talking about the Vietnam War, he said, this is a war for the soul of America. I think of myself as a Bobby Kennedy Democrat. And I also feel when it comes to Bobby Kennedy and when it comes to the assassination of Martin Luther King, normally when someone you love dies, every year it's a little more peaceful, a little less tortured. I find with Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King every year it hurts more because everything we feared would happen when they died has happened. So when... You talk about the politics of love, and, and in a way, by doing that, you are trying to address kind of the highest level of our human condition. You, the, now, there's symptoms, you know, there's racism and homophobia, and these things that in some ways were asymptomatic a little bit until a couple of years ago, Recently. right? They got... They like cancer that got oxygen and glucose. <laughs> and now, now we can address those symptoms. But I think where you, you are trying to raise the discussion up to a place that can unite us the same way that the New Deal did or the Great Society or the New Frontier, these things that somehow got us to recognize our common humanity and our common destiny, right? Most uh, of our political conversation in America today is like trying to water the leaves, and we need to water the roots of our democracy. And we water the roots of our democracy by revisiting what our founders called first principles. And when you talk about human possibility, that's really what American democracy stands for. The founding of our country was the repudiation of a system of entitlement for king, queen, and aristocracy. The founding of this country turned that entire paradigm on its ear, the idea that all men are created equal, all men given by God, inalienable rights of life and of liberty, of the pursuit of happiness, that it's the role of government to secure those rights, to broker individual liberty and the, the balance between that and um, a care for the common good. These are very, very enlightened principles, but from our very beginning, the entire narrative of America's political journey has been that from the beginning, they're in our DNA has been the struggle between those principles and our oftentimes failure to live them. You have, on one hand, the amazing principles uh, imbued in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution, and on the other hand, 41 signers of the Declaration were themselves slave owners. 
So from the beginning, even to this day, it's this constant tension and struggle between those whose hearts are ablaze with these principles, what they mean, not just politically, but spiritually, in terms of the possibility of creating a social and political structure where self-actualization of the individual is not limited by material circumstances. That's the dream here. Many Americans today, they want to relate to their tribe and relate to their identity, but don't want to relate to the American part because there's a lot of ambivalence. And the ambivalence is because of a lack of a deeper historical understanding that we're not, it's not a matter of being a hypocritical country. It's a matter of a country is still in process. Yes, we had slavery, but we also had abolition. Yes, women were denied any rights of ownership, financial or otherwise, or property, plus denied suffrage. Yeah, that's true, but then we also had the women's suffrage movement. Then we had institutionalized white supremacy and segregation in the American South, but then we also had the civil rights movement. We had gay people denied rights, denied marriage, but then we had gay rights um, and, and marriage equality. So I think it's so important these days, obviously, to identify the problems in our history and in our present, but to identify with the problem solvers. And that's what too many people in America don't realize today. This is not the first generation to have to deal with this pushback against democracy. Let's just not be the first generation to wimp out on doing what it takes to get this country back on track. The irony, the tragic and profound irony of the United States, on one hand, these people, many of them were slave owners, not all of them, by the way, I think that's important to remember, but they did actually imbue our founding documents with the very tools with which people can better their lives. And the fact that even today where people are not finding it is not something to bitch and moan and whine about or be cynical about, which is just an excuse for not helping. It's something for us to realize is our responsibility, as it is the responsibility of every generation, to keep the process moving in the right direction. Winston Churchill said, or is said to have said, that you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they have exhausted every other option. Our historical tendency is to self-correct. So how then do we find that love-inspired rebellion? People talk about the divine feminine. There's the divine masculine too. And the divine feminine receives and nurtures and nourishes. And there is something profoundly divinely masculine about, I'm not going to take this shit. And moving on to the next thing. That's what this country was born of. Other, like I said, not true if you're a Native American, not true if you're descended from slaves. Everybody else came here from some impulse within themselves, I can do better. You know, in the Jewish religion, in the Talmud, it says that over every blade of grass, there is an angel whispering, grow, grow, grow. So America is born. That's what the whole notion is, that that it shouldn't be just the aristocrats. It shouldn't be just the king and queen. Other people should be able to own land. Other people should be able to get educated. Other people should be able to own property. Other people should be able to own wealth. Other people should uh, have the possibility of creating wealth. Other people should be able to pass these things on to their children. It's an impulse of breaking free and breaking out. And that, that is the, the struggle at the heart. Every generation of Americans... You know, sometimes the fact that you're upset about something is a sign of mental health. 
not the absence of mental health. So right. the fact that we're all upset, the fact that we're all agitated, the fact that we're all experiencing what Paul Hawken calls blessed unrest, the fact that young people are out in the streets, the fact that we're marching, this means yeah. we're American. This means we're American. This is in our DNA. What did you say? Moral outrage does not necessarily come, come from, from anger. anger, right? Listen, in the New Testament, Jesus kicked over the, the tables of the money changers. Some people go, well, how could he have? Well, no Jew or Italian has a problem with that scene. Yeah. You know, what some people in the <laughs> higher consciousness community call, like be, what they call being, what? I don't understand. You know, the spiritual life is not without personality. Patriotism is not without personality. Okay, so how now do we take this generation of people that you've helped to, to self-actualize and get them on the streets making change. Well, in case you haven't noticed, it's already happening. It is happening. Look at Parkland. Look at the Women's March. You know, I think of America today as in, in a moment, it's one of those, wait, what? Moments. Yeah. You know, I think that the, that, that the election of Trump, people, what an awakening it has been. And at first it was like a giant who's like kicked in the gut, knocked over, stumbling, stars in front of your eyes. And now I don't think I have to, first of all, I never thought I had to get anybody to do anything. I've never tried to get a message out. I'm always just trying to get a message in. But I think it's happening. And I think anybody who's listening right now and this podcast resonates with them, by definition, it's already happening. Even if it's not happening yet in their behavior, it's happening within them, in their mind, and their heart. And once it gets to a critical mass in your thinking and in your feeling, behavior occurs automatically. America is in the midst of an awakening with spirituality and politics once again becoming a centerpiece in the national conversation. How can we bring our best selves into the world around us? How can we help usher positive change? Perhaps we can rethink the skeptical, guttural response many of us have when politicians begin speaking from a place of spirituality, and instead try to see the current political climate as an opportunity to flex the power of spiritual oneness and encourage this heart-first global way of thinking. If you have comments or questions, visit us at www.onecommune.com, where you can also sign up to take courses with Marianne and other leading teachers in the wellness space and beyond. That's it from The Commune for this week. Subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. I'm Jeff Krasno, and thanks for listening.